please be aware of the toxic nature of the foods that we're consuming at the moment. Ultra-processed foods are making up probably in the order of 50% of what we consume. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today, we're speaking with James Mewkey. James is an eye surgeon, humanitarian, and social entrepreneur, and is Australian of the Year for 2020. James lived and worked as a doctor in Africa and subsequently as an eye surgeon in the Middle East, battling malaria, wild animals, and rebel soldiers. He then co-founded Vision Myanmar and also Sight for All, a social impact organization aiming to create a world where everyone can see. 80% of world blindness is avoidable, and James treats blindness as a human rights issue. He now focuses on type 2 diabetes, the leading cause of blindness in adults, and a spiraling epidemic that's, that's impacting nearly one in 10 Australians and many across the world. In fact, it's the fastest growing cause of vision loss in Aboriginal people and the sixth biggest killer in Australia, like many other parts of the world. James wants to challenge our perception of sugar and the impact that it has in the development of type 2 diabetes and our well-being overall. Dr. James Mewkey, it's delightful to have you with us. Great to be here this morning, Luca. Thanks for having me on the show. So this is a very, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. I'd love to start with a reflection from you about something you've learnt recently. Something I've learned recently? Um, gosh, I'm learning things all the time. It's, uh, it's been an extraordinary journey. You know, as you say, uh, I want to challenge our perception of sugar. And when I um, received the award last year in January, Australia Day weekend, uh, I wasn't actually expecting to receive the award at all, uh, but we had to have a speech prepared and I uh, mm. came out with those words that we're gonna, I'm going to challenge our perception of sugar. But through the year, the learnings I've had, the people that reached out to me to, to guide me, to mentor me, uh, it's so much more complex than just the sugar equation. So I'm, I'm literally learning things all the time. But uh, I had an interesting podcast a couple of days ago, actually, mm. and um, the one of the questions was uh, I think about you know my weaknesses as a leader as a leadership podcast and sure. and uh, to be honest and, and put me on the spot I, I quite like going into podcasts without any preparation because uh, it does make you think on the spot and it is more challenging otherwise you just have prepared questions yeah it's, uh, yeah it's uh, it's uh, probably a, more, a little bit more automatic a bit more robotic so uh, anyway he asked me what weaknesses as a leader and that, that was something I hadn't thought about. I mean, I don't really even consider myself a leader, but I, I suppose I am because Clearly of what I've, <laughs> I've done. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's but right. uh, then thinking about strengths as a leader, uh, weaknesses as a leader, and it made me reflect on the spot that um, mm. you know, what was one of my weaknesses was uh, I'm, a, I'm a, you can probably tell I'm a quite a positive sort of guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like to, I, I like to say yes, I'm not, I'm not a no person. And I often jump into things a bit, a bit hastily. You know, I, I'm just so enthusiastic about things that, that perhaps uh, the one thing I've learned recently is, is uh, to, to realise that myself that uh, I do leap into things uh, with so much vigour and vim and enthusiasm that uh, I sometimes have to rein myself in and mm. uh, the podcaster actually asked me, you know, how have you dealt with that in the past? And, and interestingly, also this week I had a, 
had a meeting with my executive officer or site for executive officer and uh, I said to her just um now, if I'm if I'm jumping ahead of, of our ability to fund a project or our ability to manage our projects because of our limited resources, just you know, rein me in to say no. Sorry, James, we don't have the opportunity to do that at the moment. So, you know, some interesting learnings about that myself is, recently. But uh, yeah. you know, in terms of um, the world of sugar and processed food and all of the vested interests which are driving. Uh, poor chronic health. It's, um, I'm learning things literally every day. It's quite extraordinary. And, and it's a matter of actually rounding up all of those learnings and, 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 and making them work so that we can actually drive better health for Australians and, in fact, the rest of the world. Yeah. Look, James, the, it, I have a saying, um, I suffer from enthusiasm, not from boredom. And I feel like, you know, your greatest strength perhaps is also the shadow of that strength is constant, constant engagement and kind of jumping into projects, but which of course is a wonderful way to live one's life, I think as well. But also it can take a bit of a toll, particularly with your amazing journey that you've had around the world of service, frankly. And, and to your second point, there is something really profound about, you know, a pandemic that disrupts and pauses some of our old behaviors where we can actually take a second look at how we've got to where we are. And certainly nutrition and health overall have become just so well, health in particular have, has become just such a central discussion point in a way that was inconceivable perhaps a couple of years ago. So I'd love for you to take us through, you know, what is it we should be paying attention to? The, you know, the big focus of your work around sugar as one aspect of, you know, the dimensions of health. Because of course, as an educationalist, you know, and all, as educators and leaders, we care about well-being because there is the health education nexus. You know, you know, we need to be able to feel well. We have to have the right kind of fuel physiologically to be able to learn optimally as well. So, so take us through a bit of that journey. Why, what is the challenge that we have right now in Australia yeah. and across the world? And what might we oh, do about it? The challenge is huge. And we can talk about that for hours. How long have we got? <laughs> 25 minutes. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, okay, I better stay quick. Um, yeah, so, so uh, as I mentioned, you know, a year ago, I started off on the journey and it was all about sugar. And, uh, and this was before the pandemic mm. hit. Mm. But if we look at Australia over the, the, the year, let's say that we're almost, we're just over a year now, aren't we, since it broke out. In the year of the pandemic, first year, there's been 15, one five, 15 times more deaths due to type 2 diabetes in this country rather than COVID-19 as opposed to COVID-19. Wow. And if we look at people who are dying from COVID-19 and people who uh, tend to succumb to viral illnesses such as the flu, mm. um, are the patients who have chronic diseases in particular. So you're uh, about 12 times more likely to die from COVID-19 if you have a chronic disease such as type 2 diabetes, and if you look at type 2 diabetes, if you have uncontrolled type 2 diabetes, poorly controlled or uncontrolled, you're 10 times more likely to die from COVID-19. So wow. what it's done, I mean, there's been such a, a media frenzy around this. You know, you'd have uh, a couple of cases suddenly appear in South Australia and the media is, it, you know, the cases, the case numbers have surged to two and, you know, just there's just so much... Um, hype around this, and I, I find this endlessly frustrating. And now, of course, the vaccine is so much hype around the vaccine, the, the, 
the, um, but the real focus, I think, I truly believe, we would be able to combat viral pandemics such as COVID-19 if we were metabolically healthier as a nation, mm. as a planet. Mm. And so really the focus should be on improving our metabolic health. Now, if you look at the fact that there are over two-thirds of Australian adults over the age of 24 who are overweight or obese, and over a quarter of our children are overweight or obese, and wow. clearly as a nation we're not metabolically healthy, and we would be so much in a stronger place if we were metabolically healthy. And so I truly believe that this is where the focus of our awareness raising should be uh, during times of pandemic. When a calamity happens, you know, this is uh, when we need to draw on resilience, right? Yeah, our inner strength, whether that be personally, whether that be part of a, a, a group or, or even during times such as pandemics, you actually have to draw on kind of global resilience, don't you? And uh, uh, this is such an important time to be focusing on it. You can't suddenly have good health when a calamity strikes, when a, yes. a, a pandemic strikes. So I think hopefully we will refocus on, on health, not just, you know, not just viral illnesses, but our, our metabolic, metabolic health. And uh, I know that a recent OECD poll revealed that health is the number one thing that we care about. And so I really think that this is a time to refocus on, on where we're at and, and how we've got to this diabolical place mm. in terms of our dietary health. Yeah, James, this, this phrase of, you know, our metabolic health is one of the determinants, frankly, of how, well, lifespan, quality of life, a, a real range of aspects. And often in education, we talk about, you know, the vitality factors. Well, we probably don't talk about them nearly enough, actually, is one of the challenges for us in schools and in education systems, you know, ultimately sleep, nutrition, and movement or exercise. And yeah. so, you know, the, the vitality pyramid um, often has not been designed into so many different models, be they workplaces, uh, you know, where we quite literally create a sedentary desk and it's a fast food environment, you know, or be they a traditional classroom, which thankfully many schools don't look like anymore, but, you know, with, you know, desks in rows and a child puts it and you sit down for the vast majority of the day. Yeah. There really is a moment here to reimagine, you know, in a multidimensional way, how do we create the conditions for every human being to thrive, to be the most productive possible? that they possibly can. And certainly something like um, diet or obesity or being overweight ultimately is such a, a huge barrier for that. I'd love for you, to, yeah. as, the, as one of the experts, I'd love for you to take us a little bit more into, um, into that world. So type two diabetes, how does it actually um, begin? And what might we focus on in terms of the way that we shift our diets? Why, why are we in the current situation that we are? For example, sure. what's happened to our what's <laughs> happened to our story. food options? For example, yeah. we go shopping at the supermarket yeah. over the last number of decades. Exactly. Well, type two diabetes was uh, virtually non-existent uh, in the sixties. Wow, interesting. So that's not that long ago. No. And now in Australia, we have about two hundred and fifty new cases every single day. We're even seeing it in children as young as seven. And Luke, you spent some time in remote Aboriginal communities in the APY lands of South yes. Australia, and we are seeing kids as young as seven in those communities developing type 2 diabetes this is unbelievable yeah so something has happened and 
just to cut a long story short, because there's a huge backstory to it, but in 1980, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans was released and on no strong evidence. In fact, what, what happened in the decades after World War II is it was noted a rise in, in heart disease and heart attacks. And this was attributed to a fatty diet causing fatty blockage of our coronary arteries. And so there was no strong evidence to support this. <clears throat> in fact, the evidence was flawed and manipulated as well by the, the sugar industry. Uh, what happened is that the recommendation, which was then published in the Dietary Guidelines, was to reduce the fat in our diet and to compensate for uh, that. So when you reduce fat, when you take out fat, you have to replace flavour and the ability to make you satisfy the satiety factor. Right. So what happened was that the carbs had to be increased uh, in, your, in your dietary consumption. So um, fats were reduced to 30%, uh, carbs to, to 60% in that recommendation. And rather than see a downturn in heart disease, heart disease actually soared, in fact, uh, along, along with it, type 2 diabetes. So in the last 40 years, type 2 diabetes has grown fourfold globally. Mm. But this has been much more profound in some communities and countries. So in, in, in China, for example, there's been more than a tenfold increase in type 2 diabetes. In Aboriginal communities, there's been at least an 80-fold, 80-fold increase in type 2 diabetes over the last wow. 40, 50 years. So this high-carb, low-fat dietary recommendation that has taken the world, taken over the world, has been in part responsible for driving this. Mm. And still to this day, our Australian dietary guidelines reflect a low carb, sorry, a high carb, low fat dietary recommendation. The food pyramid, and, for example, that many people would be familiar with. Oh, sorry. The food pyramid, for example, that many would be familiar with. You know, a grain basis or something. And that's right. Like that. That's right. Exactly. And uh, so the food pyramid is a, is a graphic representation of that. Mm. And so this is this has been absolutely. Uh, diabolical to our, to our health. And, and really what happened when we had this, in essence, demonization of natural saturated fat in our diet and celebration of grains, but when, when the, the natural saturated fats became the enemy, what happened then? You know, we had quite literally thousands and thousands of low-fat products that, that suddenly emerged. We had the emergence and the huge growth of uh, margarines and, and vegetable oils, what should be called seed oils, which are inflammatory and have been linked to uh, cardiovascular disease. So we had a huge growth in that market, huge growth in the ultra-processed food market, and the, the natural saturated fats still to this day in our dietary guidelines, in the food pyramid, in our Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, in the Guide to Healthy Eating for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, there is a discouragement of eating natural saturated fats. And yet there's been no evidence to suggest a linkage to cardiovascular disease. Interesting. Now, we're talking uh, unprocessed red meat, uh, eggs, full-fat dairy, even dark chocolate. No evidence to suggest they're linked to cardiovascular disease. And yet still in the minds of, I would suggest, virtually all Australians, there is a fear of, of saturated fat. The yes, saturated yeah, fat is yeah. critical to our health and critical to our survival. Mm. We should not fear the fat. What well, we should be fearing uh, this high carb, and particularly the refined carb and high sugar diet, the ultra processed foods that we're consuming, mm. which are basically created from, uh, from uh, 
refined carbohydrates, have high sugar content, and also have a significant element of, of seed oils. So this is really a perfect storm of, of a, I don't even want to call it a food, a food-like substance, which yes, is driving, yeah. driving this uh, epidemic of uh, poor health. And it's interesting, you know, often people talk about exercise. Exercise is important, and I think particularly for our mental health, mm. but our poor diet is responsible for more disease and death than inactivity, smoking, sure. and alcohol combined. So the diet is the critical thing. You cannot exercise away a bad diet, that's certainly it. for the majority of us anyway. Yeah, gee, that's, that's really powerful. I, w- I was going to bring up uh, a documentary I watched called Fed Up some years ago on Netflix, and, and really it talks about food-like products. And it does talk about that pivotal moment in 1980 when the World Health Organization spoke about the danger of fat, but not the danger of sugar, and how really we had, we, all the kind of product X light came out after that, you know, which had removed all fat. But of exactly. course, put in, you know, high glucose, fructose, corn syrup, you know, all these kind of products. And the 80% of the products that we buy or we look at in a supermarket have refined sugars placed into them. And particularly if you're a child, you know, it does, it's pretty hard to uh, resist when, you, when it's at eye level, and, you know, you see like all the kind of the lollies or the high sugar products, which are placed there deliberately, of course, because it's their high, the fast moving um, consumer goods. Uh, where do, how do we solve this problem? Because it, it really seems to me like as a, <coughs> as a doctor and as an eye surgeon, you know, you've, you've kind of moved, tried to move back to the causal factor of that blindness, knowing that if we can solve that, then we don't need as many surgeries. So I think that's really powerful. And the question is, what can we do as a society to try to move further upstream and think about, you know, what's the policy mechanisms, for example? What, what do you advocate for yeah. in terms of, you know, the educational approach? Like, yeah. how do we talk to young children about, you know, what they put in their bodies, their fuel? And how do we get proper nutritious substances as opposed to food-like products? Yeah, which I think exactly. is what we're mistaking as food so often. Well, yeah, clearly I've, I've given this uh, a lot of thought over the last year and, when I received the award for South Australia of the Year, I um, it was all about raising awareness of the fact that diabetes, and particularly type 2 diabetes, which makes up 90% of cases, roughly, uh, is the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults. And, and me, as an eye specialist, an eye surgeon, uh, over the 31, 32 years that I've been practicing, I've just seen this growth in vision-threatening eye disease due to particularly type 2 diabetes. Yes. Uh, and, and yet I was really dealing with these end-stage complications, never really giving it much thought about uh, giving patients advice on, on their diet and, and their lifestyle, really figuring that was the role of the general practitioner, the endocrinologist, the dietitian, nutritionist, whoever it might be. So in 2018, I met a man whose story was so powerful that really changed my thinking. And, and he was a, a 50-year-old guy uh, when he went to bed uh, one night with normal sight, woke up the next morning blind in both eyes and wow. still blind to this day. And his story was was so powerful that I created a TV commercial uh, around raising awareness of, of this issue of, of potential blindness due to type 2 diabetes. But then going forward to the National Awards Ceremony, again, I mentioned, I think, uh, that uh, I wasn't expecting to win it, but I was uh, giving it a lot of thought and then realised that, gee, if I'm going to win... Australian of the Year, and, and this is a recognition 
uh, within Australia. So shouldn't I be talking about something which is really critical to Australians' health, which is which is type 2 diabetes? And so mm-hmm. that's when I started delving into the whole issue uh, much more deeply. And, and sure. the month of January leading up to the award, I was really reading a lot and thinking about it a lot. And I came up with a, a concept, which I think is still quite revelant, relevant. Uh, and I, I came up with this thing I called the five A's of sugar toxicity. I'm not sure if you've no, heard me I talking haven't. about that. No, this would be fascinating. Take us through it. The first is addiction. So sugar is highly addictive. It's been shown to be as addictive as nicotine. And in fact, I'm currently, I've just created uh, a presentation that I'm going to give to to children, to teachers and, and to parents as well. They're all slightly different. But this education needs to start at the earliest age. So sugar is the only addictive substance we actually give to infants. Yeah. So sugar is highly addictive. Second, uh, alleviation. We often use sugar to alleviate stress and to make us feel better when we're down. And we remember a year ago when all of the uh, um, the toilet paper went flung off the shelves. <laughs> so did the sugar. So did the, uh, the yeah. soft drinks. So did the pasta and uh, the flour. And in fact, it's really important to remember that refined carbohydrates so products such as white flour, white potatoes, white rice, so pretty much pure starch. And starch is simply long chains of glucose, which is broken down into glucose when it reaches the gut. So when you're consuming refined carbohydrates, yeah. you're pretty much consuming glucose, sugar. And it's really important to remember as well that, that sugar and refined carbohydrates are nutrient-poor and non-essential. There's no biochemical process in our bodies that demands we have these substances. So addiction, alleviation, and the third A is uh, accessibility. You know, you can't walk into service stations without being confronted by a wall of confectionery. You can't check out from most supermarkets and stores without being enticed by half-price soft drinks and chocolate. So it's, yeah. it's diabolical. Fourth A is addition. As you mentioned, about 75% of our food and drinks have added sugar, and there's uh, at least 56 common names for sugar and so the consumer is is not aware and there's no labeling system telling us how much sugar is contained within these products and finally the fifth a is is advertising yeah Uh, so our world and and when you you realize it you see it all the time our world is flooded with ads tv commercials for sugary products and particularly aimed at kids on tv and social media so these five a's of sugar toxicity i think are really driving this diabolical dietary situation that we're in at the moment, combined with the, um, the dietary guidelines, which are powerful, and they actually inform what's eaten in schools, mm. what's eaten in aged care facilities, prisons, the defence force, hospitals. Yeah. You know, they're serving cereals and orange juice to patients who've just had their legs amputated due to their type 2 diabetes. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a big problem. And so if we look at the, what the requirements, uh, I've come up with another concept that I've, I've, which is all around the letter A, and, and the overarching concept is action, and we, we do nice. need action right now to make a difference. So the three A's are awareness, uh, accountability, and assistance. And, and awareness is critical. Awareness, I think, has got to drive all this, and, and awareness beginning uh, in at schools and um, about the the dangers of excessive consumption of sugar, refined carbohydrates, and ultra processed foods. So that that's a really key point. Mm-hmm. Awareness about the five A's of sugar toxicity that I just mentioned. Awareness that the dietary guidelines are flawed and have been conflicted by 
tremendous in, in, industry influence. Awareness that type 2 diabetes is a preventable disease. Mm. And awareness that if you actually do have type 2 diabetes or if you have prediabetes, then you can potentially put it into remission by changing, quite simply changing your diet. And there's mm. now over 100 controlled clinical trials that, that back that up. So that's not, uh, that's not nonsense. That's, that's, that's science. Mm. So awareness is critical. Uh, accountability is another thing. Accountability of businesses and industry to do the right thing by people in Australia. Uh, and the predatory marketing tactics, which are so insidious, mm. the government needs to be accountable. The government needs to take action to, to change this. They're not going to do it by themselves because there's a huge amount of money, a, a huge amount of money that is driving the processed food industry. Mm. And the final thing is assistance. So we need assistance for teachers to be able to educate children on the right dietary approach. We need assistance for general practitioners to be able to spend time with their patient, have the appropriate tools to educate their patients about the right dietary approach. Uh, and, and we need assistance for people who do have metabolic disorders. So I think one of the concerns is that real, fresh, healthy food, whole foods are expensive. So perhaps they could be subsidised to allow yes. Uh, patients in poor communities, and we know that type 2 diabetes is more prevalent in poor communities, give them the ability to purchase fresh food at a, at a subsidised rate. So that's just some of the mechanisms, and, and uh, you know, we, could, we could talk about each of these in quite some detail, but uh, this is an overarching thing that I'm now trying to create a network to have this systemic change that's needed to, to reverse this dietary uh, a disaster in James I find I find all that very compelling actually I mean it's uh, with action being the overarching well intention really um, and of course one one thing that I've become aware of is that we rarely cost in the status quo what we do is we cost in the change or the intervention and so we'll say well actually to set that up um, you know doc, dr. Muki will cost you know 15 million dollars. And yet there is this, not this understanding of actually the cost currently. I mean, the return on investment with awareness, accountability, assistance, you know, your three A's around you know, the future world, surely economically makes a lot of sense. I mean, how much is type 2 diabetes costing the government, costing healthcare mm. systems, for example? Um, and yet We're fully aware of how much it's costing. It's now costing, <clears throat> the last analysis was back in... 2012, I think it was, it was costing $14.6 billion annually. So that was nearly 10 years ago. And I suspect we're now up at least at the $20 billion mark. But if you actually realise wow. our poor metabolic health and, and in particular type 2 diabetes, which is not only a blinding and a maiming disease, it's also a deadly disease, as you mentioned, but it, it is also a huge driver of the top three killers in our society, which is heart attack, dementia, and stroke. So if you actually factor all of these other diseases in, also the fact that insulin resistance, which is the core to um, to, to metabolic dysfunction and, and type 2 diabetes, is a big driver of hypertension. And hypertension yeah. is the biggest risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And then once again, cancer is another one that's been linked to, to, uh, uh, to our poor diet. So if you factor in all of these other diseases and the cost, not just of the treatment, but also the lost productivity in the workforce uh, and also the mental health, um, the poor mental health uh, outcomes that arise in these scenarios, 
Wow. I mean, I'm, I, I would hazard a guess that it's well over $100 billion. And, and, and the cost of a health awareness strategy surely is <laughs> yeah. phenomenally cheaper than that. But unfortunately, there's other things driving it. As I mentioned, mm. the, the, uh, the vested interest, particularly of industry, but also religious vested interests, which are there as well, which are countering this all the time, actively countering this. And the government is hamstrung because there are votes at stake, there's uh, revenue at stake, mm. uh, there is jobs at stake. But I have no doubt that all of that pales into insignificance when it's compared to the phenomenal cost that is uh, on the government and ultimately on the taxpayer. Mm. James, what would you, if we could have this conversation, you know, in 15 years' time, what is the world that, that you're, and now me, because you, of course you've, <laughs> you've been the advocate that you often are, you know, that we're fighting for. What is the world that you think we need to create? What could it look like in 2035 at a societal level if we raise awareness, create accountability, increase assistance that really shifts, you know, societal behaviours and then also the policy frameworks because those are the technical aspects as well. Mm. You know, I note, for example, because you're quite active on LinkedIn, which is brilliant, um, but, you know, that orange juice for the first time has been, you know, I think for a time it was at the high five-star rating or something and it's been dropped and people were a bit upset about that. But, of course, the biochemistry doesn't lie. You know, so, so what do you think is the world, what do you hope the world looks like in 2035 when it comes to type 2 diabetes and frankly the nutrition, the tr nutritional foundation that really drives productivity, that drives a life well lived, that certainly drives learning outcomes as any teacher will tell you, you know, post lunch, a high sugar, red cordial kind of environment can be quite damaging. Yeah, what, what do you think the future could be if we get this right? Sure. What would it look like? And you mentioned the, um, the health star rating system for orange mm. juice. It was recently downgraded from five stars to as low as two stars. And if you realise that a glass of orange juice has almost as much sugar as a, a glass of cola, mm. then it's quite, it's quite uh, uh, appropriate a downgrading. And yet, as you said, there was a huge amount of resistance. And that's just one product. There are a number mm. of other products that also get a healthy rating. So the whole health star rating system is a... Industry tool designed by industry for industry. So um, yeah. that, that's something that needs to be rectified. I mentioned the dietary guidelines and I'm applied to be on the dietary guidelines review committee. So oh, I'll find out any day now whether I'm part of that and I'll be pushing very much for evidence-based dietary guidelines, which are not mm. conflicted by industry and are appropriate to all Australians. And we need to have a relevant dietary guideline. Uh, so that, that's critical. And, and, and once that happens, once that dietary guideline is in place, that'll be in place for at least another 10 years. But it won't come out till 2024. So in the meantime, you know, there will be uh, probably in the order of 100,000 patients with type 2 diabetes diagnosed every year. There'll be 15,000 deaths due to type 2 diabetes every year. So it's time to raise awareness. So I want to see, and interestingly, you should say, I talked about awareness and over the year I've talked about the fact that I've never on mainstream free-to-air TV or radio seen any government-funded ads about our poor dietary health, about type 2 diabetes. We still see things about smoking. We still see things about motor vehicle accidents, buckling up. All of those are very important, of course. Yes. Still nothing about type 2 diabetes. So I want to see awareness raising on free-to-air TV. Mm. Uh, and so yesterday, for the first time ever during news, I actually saw uh, an awareness ad 
created by Diabetes South Australia, raising awareness of, of time. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. So it was great to see, and, and I hope we will see more of that. So the environment, we, we need a complete paradigm shift, and a paradigm shift is a huge thing, but it starts with a dietary guideline. It starts with an acceptance that natural saturated fats are not bad for us, they're actually critical, and that we should be uh, uh, not continuing to celebrate what in essence is a high carbohydrate dietary approach or a dietary recommendation. Mm. If we look at the fact that I mentioned before, two thirds of us plus are metabolically unhealthy. And if we look at the fact that type two diabetes, pre-diabetes is essentially conditions of carbohydrate intolerance, mm. then feeding us a high carbohydrate diet is absolutely the wrong thing to do. So there just needs to be an entire paradigm shift in, in the way we eat. And so, uh, you know, um, back in the 70s, I, I still remember in the 80s, this sudden, sudden uh, influx of, of, of low-fat uh, products. And the butter, I remember the, the butter is better campaign. So the poor, the poor dairy industry and butter, you know, had to really kind of fight back and say, you know, butter is better. And I still remember that. But, but actually what I haven't seen for many, many years is, is the celebration of uh, some of these um, uh, natural saturated fat products. And I'm not just talking about animal-based products, but also plant-based products as well. I think it's really time to, to celebrate some of these foods and how important they are for our health. So we just need to see <clears throat> a huge shift. We need to see uh, a downturn in the power of the processed food industries, which is a, a multi-trillion dollar industry, which is mm. driving the poor health, driving a plant-based dietary agenda. Um, has such a powerful influence through their marketing strategies. So we just need to see the government really take action to hold these industries accountable. And you mentioned some of them just simply, you know, the the, the fact that uh, confectionery is all yeah. aimed at the eyeline of children in those aisles and the predatory marketing of, of promotional products at checkouts and end of aisles. And yeah. They call wow, it F no, it FMCGs, yeah, FMCGs, fast-moving consumer goods. The fact that that's even a thing, I think, is kind of problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the ends of aisles, the eye level, yeah, it's really difficult to resist. I yeah. think so, yeah. and, and I think what I'm hearing from you, James, is it can't. It's not just personal responsibility. That's that's part of the arrangement. Is you know the decisions we make as consumers, as you know, parents, as whatever in our day-to-day -day lives, but it's also the kind of what those options happen to be for us. And that's yeah. where kind of the technical responses of dietary guidelines, which, you know, I, I think every Australian would assume they're there to protect us, mm. um, which uh, might not actually be the case. <laughs> no, no. And, and if we go back to those five A's of, of sugar toxicity and the fact that sugar is, is, is addictive. And so personal responsibility when you have an addictive substance which you first started consuming in your infancy and it's been part of your life and, and you know, birthdays, Easter, Christmas, celebrations, it's all about, you know, sugar and sweet. You know, when it's uh, this cultural, I suppose, recognition that sugar is this lovely thing that we should be celebrated, but in fact it's toxic, it's a toxin uh, and it's addictive. This is really, really critical, isn't it? And, and you know, if you've done, if you've made an attempt and it's not that easy to detox from sugar. It's actually quite unpleasant, and I've done it a number of times. But if you if you do make that attempt to detox from sugar and you're proud of yourself and you're doing well and you've got rid of all of those sugary products uh, from your house and you go to the supermarket 
and there they are at checkouts. Uh, but even if you, uh, even if there is one aisle with sugar-free checkouts, uh, which some of the supermarkets doing as a, as a kind of a, um, a token thing, I reckon. But if you then go to the fresh food section of the supermarket, and there is a, a stall selling chocolates right in the middle of the the fresh food section, <laughs> which I saw last weekend. You know, it's such yeah. predatory marketing, and the uh, the the businesses, the industry pay top dollar to actually put that, let's say that chocolate stall in the middle of the fresh food section of the supermarket is just terrible. So environment is a critical part of this. And if we actually consider that many of us, if not all of us are addicted to sugar in some some form or other, Mm. then it's all about protecting the environment of the individual. So giving us an environment where we can go out safely and if we want to avoid sugar, we, uh, we we don't need to be bombarded by ads everywhere we go in our environment. We don't need to be bombarded by seduction in supermarkets of these sugary products. It just needs, we need to be protected. Yeah, Personal responsibility, I think, is a small part of this. And uh, I think the, um, uh, the much bigger... Bit, the much bigger ticket items are the awareness raising. I, I myself as a doctor wasn't aware that a year, just over a year ago, that doc, that uh, sugar is so addictive and that we use it to alleviate stress. I hadn't even given it some thought. Mm. And yet, and how would the common person on the street have any idea um, and any idea of this huge amount of sugar that's added to our food and drinks yeah. and, and the predatory tactics that are there? And, you know, you're sitting filling up your petrol, petrol station. There's a two-for-one deal for chocolates um talking to you from from the uh, the nozzle and so you know you go in and you end up buying both chocolates and eating both of them before you get home which is what i've done (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so true james it's 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 funny because it's just so obvious when Mm. we actually have the awareness around that Uh, and of course you know if we are going to enable people to be healthy and again the the links between you know, health and learning and well-being generally are just so strong. Um, they're really undeniable. Mm. You know, we need to be thinking multidimensionally about all these aspects. And in this case, the nutrition and the way that we, you know, the, the, the food that, nutri- you know, the nutrients that it provides us as opposed to those food-like products. Yes, exactly. I would love, uh, this, I love this concept of a paradigm shift. And if we're having this conversation in 2035, it'd be great if we are at that place. And I mean, I think actually, we just have to be around so many different issues in our world. And many, many have spoken about on this podcast. Thank you for spending the time with us. I would love to you to share a final reflection, which is what is your take home message for the listeners of this podcast in, in the work they do and the lives that they lead? Well, uh, if we <laughs> take home message, if we're talking along the type two diabetes line, um, please be aware of, the toxic nature of the foods that we're consuming at the moment. Ultra-processed foods are making up probably in the order of 50% of what we consume. So next time you reach for an ultra-processed packet on the supermarket shelves, have a think about whether that's doing you harm. Mm. It almost certainly is. And often uh, products that are labelled as healthy are not that way. So that's that's one thing. The other thing I think, which uh, you know, for me was um, a huge, huge uh, sliding door moment in my life. I actually uh, studied school. I was went to school in Canberra, and there was no medical school in Canberra. I was heading to Sydney um, to go to medical school where all my friends were going, yeah. uh, and um, I missed out on Sydney University of Medicine by one mark. 
And I was devastated at the time. And I ended up coming to Adelaide University uh, to study medicine and made my life here. But that sliding door moment was such a powerful moment for me that ha has created incredible opportunities and allow me to, I suppose, achieve what I've achieved and learn what I've learned and be able to have the most rewarding life to embrace those sliding door moments in your life. Don't fear them. So that's obviously not aligned with the type 2 diabetes message, but I think they're both good take-home messages. They really are. Um, Dr. James Mukey, thank you so much for speaking to us for the, the Learning Future podcast. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks again, Luke. I really enjoyed this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.